I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Episode 77 of The Hilo, the weekly current affairs and pop culture podcast brought to you by journalists Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. How are you doing, Panda? I'm very well, thanks, Doll. How was Northern Ireland? Northern Ireland was great. I love Northern Ireland. Went to Belfast and discovered Tato crisps. You sound like a celebrity that's on, like, number 12 interview of The Junket. How are you enjoying your time in London? Um... Great, great. I ate a crumpet today. <laughs> London's great. I love London. <laughs> no, I truly love Belfast and I'm obsessed with Tato Crisps. And I found out that there is a Tato Crisp theme park that the kind people at Tato have actually invited me to. So. <laughs> They're the best crisps I've ever eaten. And I'm, Are they like Lay's? I am passionate about crisps. Lay's, Walkers. So they're like Walkers, but the consistency of them is, is thicker and quite almost nutty. Nutty. So good. So, so good. It's quite mean that you didn't bring CJ and I any to I should have, actually. That You'd just, have went, route, though, that just went through my head. Um, next time when I'm in Ireland. There are different Tato's as well. There are Tato's for Northern Ireland and Tato's for Southern Ireland. What's the difference? Um, it's subtle, apparently, but there was a huge debate about it on uh, my Twitter feed. I've never had more replies to a tweet. Than Tato. People talking about Tato. And everyone said that, that, that what I have to do is get... Tato pickled onion crisps and put them in white bread with some Kerrygold butter and have a crisp sandwich. So I've never had a crisp sandwich. I know people are. Oh my god, that's so it. your vibe. Crisp sandwiches. No, I don't really. Un- I don't really understand them. Why? To me, it's like having a potato pizza. Double carb, perfect. Yeah, I think I like them on their own. Can we have some crisp sandwiches next week? I can convert you. I can do a really good one. Bring one then. I okay. wrap it in tin foil. I will. CJ, do you like a crisp sandwich? I haven't really had one since I was about 12. Should we try okay, one? Perfect. We'll all have one next week. We'll yeah. all try one, yeah. Okay. Pandora, you had um, a fun night on Saturday, didn't you? Met one of your literary heroes? Made a bit of a gaff. Can you tell our listeners about that? <laughs> you can tell it for me if you like, darling. So Pandora and I were at our darling friend Elizabeth Day's 40th on Saturday when um, David Nichols, who's one of our favourite writers, who wrote One Day, uh, was introduced to me. And I said, I'm Dolly. And he said, I know. And this is Pandora. And Pandora was talking to someone else. And I said, yes, it is. And he said... I love your podcast, The High Low. So I was beside myself and I knew how much that Pandora loved David Nichols. So I said, Pandora, um, this is David and David, this is Pandora. And Pandora just had a sort of faraway look in her eye and started gibbering on about how she was going to lend him her dress. He said, he said... I like your dress, and I said you can borrow it sometime. And he said, does it fasten at the front or the back? And I said, oh, there's a zip at the back. Once you're in, you're in. 
Publishers. And a publisher that was also Charmaine Lovegrave, who we were talking to, said, "Are you talking about the dress?" And then I was aware that it all sounded sort of slightly euphemistic and weird and pervy on my part, not poor Dave Nichols' part. So anyway, then I trundled over to, to... I still had deemed it a successful conversation. It was fun. You know, we'd, we'd had some light-hearted banter about the dress. And Dolly then said, do you know who that was? And I said, yeah, it was a lovely man called David. He liked my dress. And she was like, that's David Nichols. <laughs> Pandora was mortified. I went back up and I apologised to him. And he said he remains a fan of the Hilo. So it was still a triumph. It was such a triumph. But I didn't offer was, my dress to anyone a, else. It was such a joy to it. It was the first thing when I was like, that's David Nichols, Pandora. Said, oh my God, I offered him my dress. I was like, what? How did that happen? Anyway, my Notting Hill moment. We, it was so Hugh Bonneville in Notting Hill. We absolutely loved meeting him. He was such a nice man. Such a nice man. Today is World Kindness Day, which is also rather lovely. I have a poem that I'd like to read for World Kindness Day, if that's okay, Pandora. Take it away. It is about the kindness of strangers, and it's actually my favourite poem about the concept of sisterhood, and it's written by Kim Adonisio, and it's called To the Woman Crying Uncontrollably in the Next Stall. If you ever woke in your dress at 4am, ever closed your legs to a man you loved, opened them for one you didn't, moved against a pillow in the dark, stood miserably on a beach, seaweed clinging to your ankles, paid good money for a bad haircut backed away from a mirror that wanted to kill you, bled into the back seat for lack of a tampon, if you swam across a river under rain, sang using a dildo for a microphone, stayed up to watch the moon eat the sun entire, ripped out the stitches in your heart, because why not, if you think nothing and no one can. Listen, I love you. Joy is coming. Oh, Isn't that lovely? Where did you find that? Uh, our friend Olive sent it to me. I'd oh, never, so nice. I'd never heard of it before, and she said, "I think you'd really like this poem." No, I've never heard it. of it before, but it's I can lovely, see why it? you love it. How's ye old mailbag this week, Dolly? In fact, shout out to Anna, our brilliant sub editor and mailbag sorter, for helping us on our sifting quest. We couldn't do it without you. She has been such a saviour. Thank you, Anna. And we had a really interesting email this week from Jacob in response to our discussion of William Sitwell's resignation. I appreciate your point that the public or media denigration of a lifestyle choice does not compare to that of the impact wrought on a group or an individual for something they haven't chosen, like their gender, sexuality or race. But I think the issue from the vegan community about this joke is that these people feel that their lifestyle decisions are directly about animal welfare, objecting to the animal abuse and protesting the minimal rights they have as sentient beings. You spoke about historical oppression in terms of a human experience. However, there are literally none more voiceless or able to advocate for their own rights or lives than animals. I think the issue is less about making fun of a lifestyle choice than it is the implicit mockery and disregard of the reasons that motivate the lifestyle choice. Though I've met many humorless vegans, I think it might be more helpful to frame this public backlash in the context of people angered on the behalf of the vulnerable beings they seek to protect, rather than feeling wounded by people belittling their personal choices. P.S. I've also been cooking loads of lentils to French chill. (laughs) I just thought it was... um, a really interesting email. And we, mm. Pandora and I always like to be, you know, challenged um, on our opinions, particularly when, when someone's coming with a fresh perspective or um, a personal experience. And we thought that was a really interesting perspective, thinking of veganism as being a spokesperson for the voiceless. It's not uh, a specific way of thought of it before. So thank you very much, Jacob. I found a new French chill, incidentally. I'm now on to Good Morning Jazz <laughs> on Spotify. You're welcome, guys. 
It was Remembrance Sunday, on Sunday, go figure, and it marked 100 years since the end of the First World War. And there were some beautiful stories in the papers this weekend, including one in The Observer about Nora Anderson, who lost all of her sons in the war, Charlie, Ronnie, Teddy and Bertie. The devastating California fires rage on with 44 people dead at the time of recording. It's interesting as well to see so many celebrities weighing in on this natural disaster. Miley Cyrus's home, for example, has burnt down. We aren't used to seeing them in the centre of a vulnerable act of God. Natural disasters are, you know, not typically something that affects very rich, privileged people who live in kind of relatively safe parts of the world. Yeah, it's incredibly sad. And, you know, I think it, it's it's sad for anyone losing their home, no matter who they are or what, the, what their home is or where it is. Um particularly when it's such a kind of space of sanctuary for so many people. Totally. In far less tragic but arguably still sad news, there are some surprising stats from a market intelligence agency called Mintel on the male body this week. 46% of all men remove their body hair, up from 36% in 2016. I don't think I can bear that statistic. Are Are you in that stat? Not that doesn't count shaving your face, does it? No, no, no body hair. Body hair. Oh, um, no, I'm not part of that. If, do you know Thank what? God. I was just thinking for a moment. I don't know if I need to know that. <laughs> As the only male representative in this room, I feel like we have to know. Fueled, obviously, by Love Island and reality celebrities who are all pumped and shiny. I was, like you say, still surprised by mm. the fact that it's creeping pretty close to half of all men. Barbara Ellen wrote a really interesting bit on the hyper-idealised body image for The Observer. She said that the removal of body hair by both women and now men is like an equality of anxiety. Mm. She wrote, it's as if the famed male gaze is being savagely and pitilessly turned back on themselves, she wrote. Do you know what's funny? I, I think that's a really interesting way of putting it, but it's actually not an equality of anxiety in that I don't think that women would be horrified and men feel the pressure of women being horrified by a hairy body, whereas I feel like there's still a disparity there with women. I totally agree, but I think that the peer pressure um, for masculinity to be a certain way Mm. is actually possibly more intense amongst peer groups now than it is with women. I think Mm. we see a lot more individuality, Mm. especially in young women, than we do in men at the moment. yeah. I mean, it was... Do you know what? I I, I just really loved um, the way she put that in a quality of anxiety Mm -hmm. because I think that we are seeing rising pressures in men. Um, We know we are. I mean, the fact that suicide is the biggest killer of young men. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's a stat that you can't argue with. It's interesting to see the way that's creeping up and why, even if, as you say, it's not because of a pressure... It's yeah. not. It's not born out of misogynistic. No, no. It's and and it's it's funny because it does sound like a kind of fun, quirky sap, but I do, I do think it says quite a lot. About yeah, no, I think it's quite where worrying. we are with kind of masculinity and and sexuality. It must be to do with the conglomeration of uh, porn culture and popular culture because in porn, mm. obviously the lack of hair everywhere is to see as much of the physical act as possible. Um, and that's and that's I must have just kind of seeped into you know it's nice to think about a ball shaft when I've just eaten my lunch <laughs> but that is where it began <laughs> let's what? make 2019 a woolly year for all <laughs> and of course the Spice Girls are back but without posh will you be going to the reunion 
No, I'm quite upset actually. <laughs> I won't. You are wiping your eyes. <laughs> um, I didn't realise I was as much of a Spice Girls purist as I am. That's the first time I've ever heard someone put it like that. What's I the... find myself quite upset that she's not doing it. I totally understand. Poor woman has this really successful fashion business. And yet again, they're all... Because obviously when all of these bands come back, at a certain point it's just dosh, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, of course. She's obviously like, guys, I really want to design a pair of trousers. I don't want to be, you know, shoved out onto stage again where I have to... Because she was never that confident singing either, mm. was she? Mm. But Will you go see them? I doubt I get tickets. They've probably all gone already, haven't they? Yeah. It's like Harry Potter. Never got tickets to that. Glastonbury. (laughs) There was talk on our WhatsApp group of my uni girlfriends of us going. But then the tickets were like upwards of 200 quid. And when Posh isn't there, I think I'd find it sad. Is she your favourite? No, that Lauren had a bit of a go at me about it. She was like, I don't know why you're suddenly getting your knickers in a twist about it when you've never expressed any affiliation with Posh. Jerry was always my favourite. Who was your favourite? I didn't have a favourite. Not baby? No, what, because I'm short and blonde? No, I'm actually probably sporty. I dressed like her when I was ten. Really? Yeah, lots of Adidas. Which one did you have on your wall, CJ? Do you think you had boys enough Spice Girls yes, on their did. wall? Did you have a Spice Girl on your wall? No. Okay. <laughs> I bet he had Natalie and Brulia. <laughs> Who did you have? I had Christina. Aguilera? No. Which Hamilton. One? <laughs> She's actually called Christine. <laughs> so no spices for either of you then. What have you been enjoying this week, Cremont? I watched the most delicious one-off programme on BBC iPlayer, which was made, I am sure, specifically for both of us. <laughs> it's a one-hour... Thank you very much for making it for Pandora and I. It's a one-hour documentary called Barney's Books and Bust-Ups, 50 Years of the Booker Prize. That's some CJ-worthy illustration there. It's about the Man Booker Prize, as it's now known, which is one of the biggest British literary awards. And the programme goes through the history of the prize, why and how it was formed, all the various scandals, of which there have been so, so many, how it's judged, who forms the judging panels. There's some great interviews with the judging panel now. I think Val McDermott is the one of the judges this year. Um, and it's a great insight into how much they have to read um, and how they decide on, you know, what the criteria is for a win- for a winner. It features lots of footage of the programme because it's, it's televised, the programme, and has been for a number of years. So there's lots of kind of archive footage, including wonderful little vintage cameos from the likes of Salman Rushdie, um, who is looking incredibly handsome in all the interviews. Yeah, he was. Kingsley Amos. Still is, to lots. Kingsley Amos. Ages. <laughs> Kingsley Amos, Angela Carter, Hilary Mantel. There's a really funny bit, actually, with um, when they call Hilary Mantel's name, it's like this amazing bit of footage where she just popped up like a jack-in-the-box, just completely stood up straight immediately. And she's talking... She's won it twice and she's speaking retrospectively and she's like, that's the most embarrassing moment of my life and I can't watch the video. But when she does like a meerkat out of the box. It's so funny. They almost don't finish her name and she just pops up and has this like dead look in her eye. It's so funny. (laughs) Um, And yeah, and also all the footage shows, it's just really like old school what you imagine literary world to have been for all of the kind of 60s and 70s and 80s. It's like people chain smoking at their tables and these kind of withering put downs from authors about each other. Um, 
And it kind of covers all these like pathetic little spats and rivalries between the novelists, which really kind of did and do exist. It's such a fun watch. And for someone who's fascinated by the publishing world and its future, as well as writers and writing, it, it was just it was just brilliant. I loved it. So I urge you to watch that. Have you been having any um, spats with any other memories? <laughs> this is true to life. <laughs> No, Pandora. Um, I have, like every other person who is sane, been loving Sally Forever. It's on my watch list. I've oh been reading God. about it. It is filthy. It's so <laughs> good. It. It's on Sky, I think, but I've been watching it on Now TV. Sally Forever is a dark, surreal, very macabre comedy created by and starring Julia Davis, who we totally adore. And I'm sure our listeners will know her as well from her amazing canon of work, including Nighty Night, Human Remains and Camping. Um, And Sally Forever is still very much in that totally wonderful, completely unique Julia Davis tone. It's about a woman called Sally, played by Catherine Shepard, who leaves her unbearable fiancé who anyone who watched The Inbetweeners will notice was Neil's dad the actor um, when she is seduced by the predatory Emma played by Julia Davis it's incredibly graphic horribly sinister and at times quite unbearably funny episode 3 features such such a brilliant character played by Seb Cardinal who you can just tell is based on every single awful man Julia Davis has probably met working in TV and film a recent Guardian article described her work as Often set in drab suburbia, her shows are riven with sinister sexual urges, desperate manipulation and loneliness. And I think Sally Forever falls into that category as well. It's so, so brilliant. I'll link to that in the show notes as always. I can't wait to watch that. Simon Pegg was this week's guest on The Adam Buxton Show. Oh, your favourite Mr Buckles. Oh God, Dr Buckles is just whacking out the best episodes at the moment. And I tell you why the Simon Pegg one was so good. He... Something I'm realising as I get older, in fact, you have said this to me a few times before, because I don't have a lot of straight male friends, I've got like two close straight male friends, I think that I, a challenge for me in adulthood is going to be understanding the anxieties and vulnerabilities of men. I think when you don't spend time with men, and a lot of the time that you do spend with them, is in a capacity in a romantic capacity or dating or like a sexual capacity it's very very easy to vilify them and I think as I've got older it's something I have to really endeavor I know this sounds basic particularly as I have a brother so I know this I should know this but really understanding that men aren't bulletproof it's like a simple thing to say but it's like quite a hard thing for a lot of women to grasp I think and Simon Pegg, I agree with that. Simon Pegg is such a brilliant interviewee. And Anna Adam Buxton is always great for drawing this out of his male interviewees. He's such a good interviewee for understanding that so much of the despair and insecurities um, and sort of teenage tragedies that women have faced, men have had exactly the same experience. And he talks about the kind of failed romances and the great passions of his childhood and his adolescence in this podcast in a way that is so vulnerable and just so refreshing to hear a man have uh, the space and confidence to speak like that I just loved 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 the episode um and he also talks about fatherhood in a really interesting way and he also as a side note I think has the sexiest voice of any man I've ever heard sexier than Philippe Sands Oh, I forgot you had a bit of a thing for Philippe Sands' voice. I would say on a par with Philippe Sands. Excellent. And finally, I'd like to recommend Tash Dimitriou's episode of The Adam Buxton Show. 
everyone is talking about how funny it is and quite rightly because I think it it could be the funniest episode of all time right behind Louis Theroux singing Yes Sir I Can Boogie oh so good Um, I think she's about our age which is uh, and she's just come off the back of a relationship she's just had a breakup and she speaks very very honestly about something that is very close to home to me about the kind of divide that you feel when you get out of your 20s and into your 30s of absolute exhaustion at the prospect of potentially getting your heart broken again uh, and, a, and a real urge to just kind of declare resignation and an absolute desperate need to just settle down and just fall in love and not have to worry about that anymore and build a life with someone and she talks about that kind of tension and how she flips from one to the other and it's just so nice to hear a woman talk about it and she's just so so funny is she a comedian she's like a comedy uh actor actor. i'm sure she must have done comedy in the past as well uh, but she's... I've listened, already listened to it, like, three times. It's so I good. love how you re-listen to episodes. You do it yeah. so much. Yeah, it's like a favourite song. And I rarely do it. Yeah. Do you ever re-listen to the highlight? Uh, can't believe you do, I like, think I, I think I re-listen to, like, The Lighthouse Family, R. Kelly moment, a oh fair my. few times. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> um, Great I, recommendations, though. I want to... Um, I really want to go and check out those episodes now you're so good at like signposting podcast episodes because i can't tell you how often i think oh i've got half an hour i'll just go and get some fresh air because sometimes i don't leave the house Mm, all day and um and then i get out there and i'm like oh i don't know what i'm looking for and i look down the charts and it's always just filled with joe rogan (laughs) oh my god yeah it's so annoying that dominating we were up again to like number three a couple of days ago and i was like great and then obviously you know the next day it was like dum 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 joe rogan joe rogan i know have you listened to joe rogan (laughs) no it does not look like my thing it's like a warrior icon in it (laughs) um yeah i think it's the reason i listen to so many of them i think is because I is that us doing some own. industry bitching? <laughs> that, oh my god, that is so industry bitching. <laughs> um, I think it's because I live on my own. So, like, the importance of voices has become... I don't know, I, I always have one on when I'm, like, doing my cleaning or when I'm running the bath or when I go, you know, to the post office. Doing your cleaning. It's because I'm so lonely, Pandora, <laughs> obviously. Uh, I'd like to insert a clip here of Tash telling a story that just had me in stitches and so many people I know uh, WhatsApped me and saying, please listen to this bit of the podcast, it's so funny, where she's talking about her Cypriot father who sounds like an, an incredibly eccentric man and how he and his wife, her mother, lived down the road from from an English language school. So they let out one of their rooms to students. And she said that he formed this very strange friendship with a Turk- an 18-year-old Turkish boy called Dogan, who spoke absolutely no English. Um, and they became best friends to the point that when Dogan went back to Turkey, their dad, who's in his 70s, flew out there to go spend a week with him. <laughs> and she tells this story about when he came back um, he had some very good news for Tash about Dogan. My dad got back from Turkey and went, are you got back with your boyfriend yet? No, still, still sadly broken up. And he went, well, I've got something very exciting to tell you. It's a little bit crazy, but uh, please listen to me. Okay, what? I've met someone who is very deeply in love with you, Natasha. <laughs> I was like, right, who? Who have you met in Turkey? And he went, the boy. <laughs> Which boy? The 18-year-old boy. Dogan? Yes, the one. And he said, Dogan 
on like the third day of their trip. He was like, he couldn't hold it anymore. I was telling him every day, Dogan, something is wrong with you. What's going on? I mean, the boy <laughs> doesn't speak English or Cypriot, so I don't know what the conversation was happening. Dogan, he had his head in his eyes. I can't hold it in any longer. I love her. I'm crazy for her. I want to marry her. And then he said, it's going to be very good for you because his dad is going to give you his hotel, going to buy your house, and his dad has also promised to give you all his wisdom. <laughs> what have you been enjoying Prosecco Sykes? <laughs> How long can that joke withstand? <laughs> I read a beautiful piece of writing on grief by the musician Nick Cave, responding to a letter from a fan on his website, The Red Hand Files, who asked him if he sometimes felt like he was communicating with his son, Arthur, who tragically died in 2015 at the age of 15. And Nick Cave's a beautiful writer, mm. clearly, mm. Um, so this was a lovely bit of writing. Dread grief trails bright phantoms in its wake, he writes. These spirits are ideas. They are our stunned imaginations, reawakening after the calamity. Like ideas, these spirits speak of possibility. Follow your ideas, because on the other side of the idea is change and growth and redemption. Create your spirits. Call to them, will them alive, speak to them. It is their impossible and ghostly hands that draw us back to the world from which we were jettisoned, better now and unimaginably changed. It's like poetry. Mm. It's an absolutely beautiful piece. And it's so wonderful of him to share his learnings from that experience. I remember reading about, about what happened to yeah, him. Yeah, it's truly tragic. tragic. I just think it's really lovely that he's got a website where he responds to fan yeah. mail. It's so yeah. old school rather than just like occasionally sending, you know, something on Instagram or mm. Twitter, like just to go on and write beautiful pieces that not only help the person who's asked you a question because this person wrote and said mm. I've got a number of relatives who have passed away and I feel like I'm communicating with them do you ever feel like you have that with Arthur and he wrote this very personal letter back of which I've obviously only just shared a very small extract um and so it's just an opportunity for loads of people to enjoy his really beautiful writing especially when as you say it's come from an immense source mm. of pain anyway that got picked up by loads and loads of oh, I'm glad. news outlets as you know a, um a beautiful piece of writing and grief another beautiful piece of writing on grief actually if you are someone looking for words on grief maybe you're going through it yourself or you you know you just have a particular interest in learning more about how people express their grief um rob delaney you know the comedian who's in catastrophe who obviously really sadly lost his uh son henry at the age of two from cancer he wrote a really lovely piece on medium and i actually tried to find it to link it in the show notes for this week and i can't i'm really sorry i think he wrote it last month um and that's also obviously really really sad but um brilliant read i think as well there's also i think it's that piece if if not it's another piece of writing from him on grief and that experience where he recorded it for the BBC. Oh, wow. Apparently where very, can you listen to that, do you think? I think it's on iPlayer. I think it was on Radio 4. Um, but I'll, I'll try and find that and link that. Yeah, I'll try and find that as well and have a listen. I've been reading a lot about Asia Bibi this last week, which has been very present in the news again recently. For anyone not familiar, in 2009, Asia, a poor Christian farm labourer and mother of five in Punjab, Pakistan, was convicted of blasphemy after her Muslim neighbours objected to her drinking from the same water vessel as them. 
What has followed is a gruesome and protracted civil fallout in Pakistan. Initially sentenced to death in 2010, last week the court ruled that evidence against Asia had been fabricated, but the governor of Punjab, Salman Tazir, was murdered by his bodyguard for pledging his support to Asia, whilst a federal minister who spoke up was also killed. When the bodyguard was executed for murdering Tazir, over 100,000 people turned up to his funeral in support of what he had done, and support is being further whipped up by the hardline TLP party who are calling for the judges on the case and Asia herself to be hung. It's very interesting and very sad obviously and I wanted to talk about it as it's something I read and learned a lot about this week and I think it's really shocking because there's a lot about how progressive Pakistan is becoming especially since Imran Khan became uh, prime minister but after initially pledging support for her and condemning the violence Khan has now agreed to stop Asia leaving Pakistan so for her and her family to seek asylum in a country where she would be safe and as the week wrote in its issue last week that is to some akin to signing her death warrant Asia's husband is begging for asylum and Justin Trudeau is looking into bringing her family over to Canada um, and is trying to pursue talks with um, Khan and his um, cabinet. It's a story that speaks a lot to the polarising religion and the resultant political parties that spring out of that divide. And it still cleaves so many countries in two, however progressive their new prime minister is. And I just really hope that Imran stays that kind of I don't know, that beacon of progressive light that a lot of people hoped he would be. I think often, and you saw it in seriously extreme circles, often you get a leader like Assad when he came into power in Syria. Everyone was really excited about how this kind of leader would bring this new liberal outlook to the country. And like, look at Syria now. Um, so anyway, I'm not conflating what's going on in Pakistan with Syria. I'm definitely not doing a like for like with Imran Khan and um, Assad. But... I just think, kind of in line with what I was saying last week, we need to make sure that we keep talking about other countries, even ones that aren't necessarily, like, massively in the news um, for their civil war or things like that. And I was actually really... I was really shocked to to read that story. I was like, oh, how great that, you know, she's no longer being sentenced to death. But then when you read that, you know, everyone who spoke out for her is Mm. essentially being killed or, Mm. or protested against... Um, I also read an interesting piece by Anthony Ekendio Lennon in The Guardian in defence of his award of a traineeship on the Arts Council England back scheme to develop BAME in the British theatre, which was given to him as a white man. Have you read about this? No. It's really interesting. So Anthony looks like he could be or passes, quote unquote, as a light skinned black man. People would arrive on his doorstep when he was a child to gawp at his brother and him, he writes. He says he's identified as mixed race since a young age. He spent his teenage years living with a Rastafarian couple. He had his hair cane road. He studied African-centred studies. He joined a black body-popping crew, his words. He doesn't hide that his parents and grandparents are white, he says. He added in his name, Ekendayo, a Yoruba name, to reflect the African ancestry that he says there is no doubt is in him. What I find really interesting 
interesting about this is how different the response to Lennon has been to Rachel Dolezal. Mm, I was just thinking. Who we discussed on the high-low when the Rachel divide came out on Netflix. He's been defended by industry friends, actors, producers, dancers within the African community, sure, but also beyond them. I've read in-defence pieces about him being given this traineeship, namely by Toby Young at The Spectator, saying, let him assume whatever identity he wants. But Rachel was eviscerated for doing that. She too grew up in a mixed-race community. All her adopted brothers and sisters were black. She immersed herself in African-American culture. Her children are all mixed-race. So why is she condemned for identifying as black woman, but Lennon isn't? My hunch is that it's an arts thing. There's more fluidity in the art world. There's respect for someone that creates art, particularly in the theatre. And I also think that him being a man might have something Mm. to do with it. I'd really love to see someone discussing the cases in adjacency because I think it's really intriguing and I have to say I don't really understand the differing responses to it um, but it's a really interesting one and It's not a great day when Toby Young comes rushing to your defence <laughs> That's all I would say Well, I really enjoyed him writing about it and mm. I don't I don't condemn him for it There's, as he says, a lot of confusion about why he is the way he is He says he's never hidden his background Um so maybe, you know, I think that's something about me as well. I didn't feel... I felt differently to him than watching the Rachel divide. But And I'm sure there are differences in these stories, which is why I'd love to see more written yeah, about them. Yeah. But um, it, it does unsettle me mm. that she was really eviscerated, mm. actually. Um, and she very much grew up in that an African centre community as well. I also watched some pretty weighty stuff this week. I finished Informer on the BBC and sobbed my heart out. If you haven't watched it, seriously, what are you waiting for? What are your excuses? It's just the most sensational thing. I also watched series two of The Sinner on Netflix. Season one starring Jessica Biel was absolutely brilliant. She doesn't return in this one, but she's still an exec producer. It's not a whodunit, um, The Sinner, because as with the first series, you actually see the crime in the first episode. But it's kind of like a psychological whodunit in that it tries to find out what happened in the seemingly innocent, naive perpetrators past to make them act so out of character. This is not a spoiler alert, Mm. but it's another murder. So it tracks back as to what happened for this murder to be committed. And I completely recommend it. And I also recommend the film A Private War starring Rosamund Pike as Marie Colvin. Oh, where did you see that? I watched a screener of it. um, But I think it's out at the cinema now. If not, it's coming out very soon. Um, It was of particular interest after we had Channel 4's international correspondent, Lindsay Hilsom, on to discuss her brilliant book about Marie Colvin in Extremis. Lindsay mentioned when she came on the show how cleverly Rosamond inhabited her friend's body and voice. Physicality, she said. Yeah, I agree. Her characterisation is completely brilliant. And all of the reviews you know, say that she has been flawless in in this role. There's a very moving bit where a Syrian refugee who had actually lost his son in real life plays a Syrian father who loses his child. Rosamond said it was almost unbearable 
to witness and she found the filming of it very uncomfortable she said she felt like she was trespassing on his pain Mm -hmm. and the director Matt Heinemann says well that's how a journalist feels that's how Marie felt the instinct is to turn away to give them privacy but the journalist's inclination is to watch and Mm -hmm. to tell that story Mm -hmm. so that's also a um, brilliant thing to watch in light of pop culture circs I really enjoyed Vanessa Friedman on the Victoria's Secret show which happened last week in New York Um, Vanessa is the fashion director and chief fashion critic on the New York Times and she wrote about how Victoria's Secret is struggling in a post Me Too space and it's pivoting desperately to present all of its supermodels as strong rather than skinny and empowered rather than objectified and I'm sure that's the case for many of these women I'm sure many of these women do feel empowered by the work that they're doing with the Victoria's Secret but as Vanessa Friedman writes it's not something that it you know it's not cutting the mustard it's not passing mustard whichever other idioms and cliches you want to put in place a slightly bigger model or a slightly sportier or curvier type does not qualify as plus size by any objective definition just by the very narrow fashion industry standards furthermore she writes it's essential vocabulary its approach to the world is still dedicated to an idea of sexy which is rooted in the pin-up era where women and their bodies were defined by the eye and imagination of a male beholder when they were at the mercy of the moguls when their flesh was strapped in and sucked in and their cleavage was pushed up and their bottom were cantilevered out by the physics of spike heels and everything was waxed and moisturised to airbrush extremes and it was covered by a scrim of lacy peekaboo. And that era, she writes, is on its way to extinction. To pretend this is not so is to ignore everything we've learned over the last year about men and women and perception and the danger of received conventions. To think that presenting women as presents to be unwrapped does not shape social expectations is to fool yourself. If Victoria's Secret wants to remain relevant to the cultural conversation it has to accept some responsibility for reforming and reforming that convention right now it simply doth protest too much climate change is not just about the environment very true hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when i asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts they said what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Newsflash just in. David Schwimmer, not Schwimmer, has been arrested. CJ's just informed us that the man seen stealing... Was he stealing beer from a supermarket? And it was caught on camera and it went viral because he looks absolutely identical. CJ literally stopped the record to let us know, did you have an alert on your phone? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, David Schwimmer caught wind of this and did his own video. Yeah, which was really funny. Being like it wasn't me. Of him doing the same right? yeah and I think he tweeted Blackpool Police <laughs> anyway I'm glad time we, on their hands I'm glad we got that in anyway, as so it he's happens now, he's now been arrested yeah it's good to keep current it's my favourite time of the year again no the OED haven't released their new words again so soon but Collins have announced their words of the year list so it's happy days for your linguistic nerds over here 
The Collins Dictionary combs the internet to find the year's most popular words by using software to identify language patterns across four and a half billion words. The winner this year is single use, which has grown fourfold since 2013, thanks to our increase in conversations about plastic pollution in the oceans. The primary source of this increase is David Attenborough's Blue Planet 2, and I think that's rather wonderful news. Well, the clip of um, albatrosses unwittingly feeding their chicks plastic apparently had a huge impact. I'm really trying to make small changes in this regard. I always carry a reusable water bottle and a reusable rubber coffee cup. The European Parliament recently backed a ban on single-use plastics such as straws, cotton swabs, disposable plates bottles and cutlery and it's expected to come into effect in 2021 the uk is also planning to introduce a tax on plastic packaging which i am a big fan of i cannot bear things coming in plastic packaging i drink about three thousand gallons of water a day that's not actually hyperbole you do i drink so much water and actually if someone is um as ridiculously wizardy tall as i am I'd like to let you know that apparently that's completely normal and a nutritionist... What, you need more water than me? Yeah, because there's just like a bigger system to to pump water through. (laughs) I've got a lot more to hydrate than you because you're like a teeny tiny poly pocket. Um, But yeah, I'm ashamed to think of how much I used to use those huge bottles of water. I remember those. You'd always turn up to the Pandoli podcast with a two litre bottle which you'd glug noisily throughout the record. Do you know, I've got one of those nerdy little flasks now and a Brita filter. And I've worked out, not only is it much better for the environment, obviously, it actually works out much, much cheaper when you compare the cost of how much the filters cost to the cost of a kind of fresh bottle every day. Oh, I'm day. sure, yeah. I sat on my own and worked it all out because apparently I don't have a life. Oh, I think that's very thrifty of you. It's not the sexiest sounding winner, single use, but it's a worthy one. And Collins do typically pick a word that has political and um, ethical and moral resonance. Last year, it was Brexit. Mm. In 2016, it was fake news. There are some more lighthearted words to get our chops around. My favourite is plogging. Plogging is a recreational activity that combines jogging with picking up litter. Very popular in Scandinavia, apparently. I love that. David Sedaris famously spends the majority of his day picking up litter. I wonder if he plogs. Well, they're super ego in Scandinavia, aren't they? They hold a sustainability summit in Copenhagen that retailers from all over the world attend. And they always tend to do stuff before us on that front. So maybe we'll all start plogging now. It does sound quite sexual, doesn't it? it? Plogging. It's also one hell of an accurate compound work there's very little signposting needed there to wonder how they got to that just take the p from picking and add it to the jogging of jogging and you get a clogging vegan also featured unsurprisingly me too and gaslighting Mm -hmm. featured gaslighting is one that i find particularly exciting and i know that might sound bad but i really am a linguistic nerd so exciting is the right word i find the mutation and the kind of long life of language so thrilling and I think gaslighting is an example of the fact that there are still so many feelings and experiences on this planet that we haven't found the correct term for. Gaslighting was one of those penny drop words that so many people heard and knew what it was describing so so well and now it's just really useful when talking about power and relationship dynamics to have this specific concrete well-known shorthand to describe such a deeply psychological thing doesn't half get like overused now i know i know it is is getting really abused but i i I completely agree with you it's wonderful but like i've seen it now sort of like i wanted to buy milk in the supermarket and i was gaslit 
Oh, for God's sake. <laughs> On the Louis Theroux and Adam Buxton episode that I was talking about last week, I think, um, in relation to his documentary about polyamory, they were talking about the word compersion. Have you heard it? I have heard that. What does that mean again? So I first heard this word when I was writing a piece about polyamory and I went to a, a polyamory meetup and they were using this word quite a lot and one of the women there explained to me that it's a kind of specific form of compassion which is the feeling of happiness that you get when you see that your partner is enjoying another relationship so when you see that your partner is falling in love with um they're called metamors so like almost your lover-in-law yeah i'm not very compassionate Where's Ollie? We can uh, try it out. Um, He's in New York visiting his metaphor. That's a no, bawdy joke. Actually, that's a very bawdy joke. I apologise for that. So, compersion is about feeling contentment and respect for their kind of new love. It's like the opposite of jealousy yeah, or yeah, exactly. ownership or possession. Exactly. Um, and there was a moment when he was contemplating that perhaps it's describing a feeling that doesn't exist because if it existed, then it would have been coined in the polygamous communities. Um, that have been around for a very long time. But I think I disagree with that because I think historically polygamous communities have, on the whole, removed women's power, whereas polyamory as a modern movement, uh, particularly off the back of women's sexual emancipation, is, in theory, ethical and mindful and rooted in very clear, very explicit, very constant consent so I think that that's an example along with gaslighting or along with me too or single use of the world developing and growing up and progressing and language maturing alongside that and I just think that's so so brilliant yeah I think that's what's always so fun about when we cover these kind of updates it was like when the OED had nothing burger I just love learning new words I'm a complete geek and Sometimes they do seem a bit ridiculous, like but, I do. But sometimes they are symptomatic of, like, a really exciting shift in the world. And I think uh, that's so great. I think plogging's quite exciting. <laughs> if people can think how speedily they can clear up litter. No more just walking. It's like high-speed litter clearing. I think my favourite is gammon, which is an insult from a middle-aged white man who has reaction reviews. <laughs> Compilers for Collins noticed a 20-fold increase in the use of this word, which is hilarious. It's not even modern slang, as you might expect. It actually dates back to Charles Dickens' Nicholas Nickleby, published in 1885, where the character Mr Gregsbury is told that he has a gammon tendency. He responds, <laughs> I think you'll love this, Dolly, if it means that I grow a little too fervid, or perhaps even hyperbolical, in extolling my native land, I admit the full justice of my remark. I mean, I think that could be Jacob Rees-Mogg, to be honest. Jacob Gregsbury Rees-Mogg. I love that that's its etymology, because I thought it was literally just conservative men with a florid complexion. God, I love the word florid. Yes, that's what I thought at I first. feel slightly sad, actually, because our friend, the journalist Emma Gannon, has always been saved in my phone as Gammon because I can be very funny with words like that and wordplay. So I now feel very... I feel a bit sad every time her name comes up and it's Gammon. Maybe I should change that. I don't think it's fair for... Yeah, for um, her to have to be conflated with Mr Gregsbury. I know. Maybe change it to Mr Gregsbury, no doubt. (laughs) (laughs) And, of course, flossing is in there. I still can't floss. Can you floss? Can I just say, when you messaged me yesterday to say flossing is one of the words of the year, I can't floss... I thought, how can you get to your early 30s oh, for God's and sake. have such a poor grasp on dental hygiene? So you can't floss? 
Which one do you mean? The dancing? This one. Can you? Can you? I can't. Okay. I, I can't do it. <laughs> can you? <laughs> you look like an eight-year-old doing aerobics. CJ, can, can you, you do it? Can you floss? Oh, my God, he can. Look, he's no, trying. No, can. no, I can't floss. And this is audio. <laughs> you can't or you don't want to? Is that it? Uh, <laughs> I think that's it very slowly, isn't it? Yes, look, speed it. No, 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 no. <laughs> Okay. Apparently, flossing's very last year now, and everyone's doing the skibbity. What's the skibbity? It came from a Russian rave band. Yes, God bless the internet. And it's sort of a cross between Gangnam Style and the Macarena. official music video for Skibbity. You can check it online now with 62 million downloads. It was revealed this week that the Kingdom Choir, the choir that sang at Meghan and Harry's wedding, will be the soundtrack to the iconic Coca-Cola Christmas advert. Oh, I love that. But that isn't the Christmas advert story in the news this week that most caught our attention. Iceland's Christmas campaign has been banned from TV because it has been deemed to breach political advertising rules. As part of its Christmas campaign, Iceland struck a deal with Greenpeace to rebadge an animated short film featuring an orangutan and the destruction of its rainforest habitat at the hands of palm oil growers. Earlier this year, Iceland became the first major UK supermarket to pledge to remove palm oil from all of its own brand foods. Habitat loss in countries such as Malaysia, a major global producer of palm oil, has contributed to the orangutan now being classified as critically endangered. Clearcast, the body responsible for vetting ads before their broadcast to the public said it was in breach of rules banning political advertising laid down by the 2003 communications act this was a film that greenpeace made with a voiceover by emma thompson said iceland's founder malcolm walker we got permission to use it and take off the greenpeace logo and use it as the iceland christmas ad it would have blown the john lewis ad out of the window it was so emotional One of the stipulations upheld in the broadcast code for advertising practice is that the ad is not allowed if it is directed towards a political end. I love how baldly competitive with John Lewis, Iceland's founder, is. Well, because they do like 90% of their trade in December, these stores. So the Christmas ad is like the pressure. So to have your Christmas ad pulled is Mm. horrendous for you, you know, business-wise, isn't it? Iceland will still be placing TV ads, but only 10-second clips that will highlight palm oil-free products. There is a petition to lift the ban on the full advert, which has... This morning, it was literally... I was watching it going up and up and up by the second. So it's probably over the well over this figure by now, but it was nearly at 700,000 signatures when I was looking at it. Iceland's managing director, Malcolm's son, Richard, went on to Good Morning Britain to talk about the ad being banned. He revealed that 450 products contain palm oil have been removed from Iceland shells, although 200 still remain. Piers Morgan called Walker a hypocrite, despite the fact that none of Iceland's own branded products contain palm oil anymore, and he asked how many orangutans Walker had personally killed. Walker replied that he was not anti-palm oil, he was anti-deforestation. Also, lol at his dad's mixed metaphor there of uh, blowing it out the window. <laughs> Unsurprisingly, I don't agree with Piers Morgan. I think Iceland's no palm oil own brand alternatives are a really, really great step in the right direction. 
And I think that should be celebrated. Palm oil is having a devastating effect on the wildlife and the environment, something that I wasn't aware of for years and years. It was actually only when my friend Helen went vegetarian and she was reading about palm oil. Um, and then she started writing to companies um, asking if they use palm oil and they were so reticent with her so many companies um, when she realised and then I realised quite how ubiquitous it was mm. even the food brands that pride themselves on their sort of happy happy ethical branding and ethos it is everywhere because there's not yet an alternative I hate this idea that as soon as an issue is raised it must immediately be solved like mm, we go from so terrible true. to perfect yeah. why focus on the fact that 200 products none of which are Iceland's own brand containing palm oil are still stocked to Iceland why not focus on the fact that they have pulled 450 from their shelves a lot of people on Twitter seem to agree Daisy tweeted Good Morning Britain and said why attack an initiative which means customers can buy own brand Iceland food products knowing they're palm oil free commercial pressure will encourage other brands to follow it's a start and it raises awareness as you say palm oil is in so many products it's not possible to cull all the products with palm oil in I suspect because Iceland is fundamentally a supermarket and a retailer and if people come to buy a basic product which they don't stock and there isn't currently a palm oil free alternative they're going to get frustrated it's supply and demand they can only do and we can only do um, the best that we can and Iceland is certainly kick-starting it they're the first supermarket to take action like this and actually I think that's really interesting because Iceland is not Waitrose it's not a particularly upmarket or even middle-class supermarket it's famed for low price points and frozen food which lots of people are snobby about and often the conclusion from um, cheaper supermarkets or cheaper retailers which I see happen often erroneously a lot like with Primark is that as they're the cheapest and the naffest quote-unquote therefore they must be worst for the climate or the consumer and not always. Wired ran an interesting piece called these are all the problems with Iceland's banned Christmas advert. It reads Things aren't that straightforward. Indeed, some 100,000 orangutans have been killed in Borneo since 1999 due to deforestation and palm oil production is partly to blame. But the palm oil issue is really complex. It's in a lot of cosmetics and food. It's semi-solid at room temperature, which makes it a vegetarian alternative to animal fats. But simply removing it from the food chain doesn't mean it will help to tackle deforestation. That's interesting. It's a reminder to not get too basic on the issue. The article continues... Oil palm in itself is no better or worse than other crops, says Douglas Scheel, an ecologist at Norwegian University of Life Sciences. Pineapples, chocolate, coffee, bananas, cane sugar, soya, coconuts, vanilla and so on. Also beef cattle also replace tropical forests. Yeah, so deforestation is it's myriad in its contributions. That's really interesting. Thanks for that note. I'm going to stick that up my sleeve for a nice dinner party debate. Greenpeace argues that in Southeast Asia, especially in Indonesia and Malaysia, palm oil is a major driver of deforestation. In Malaysia and Borneo, the organisation says about 58% of deforestation is caused by palm oil. In Indonesia and Borneo, it's 40%. It's also said that it's very tricky to attribute deforestation to any particular crop as any estimates rely mostly on satellite imagery. 
The article very interestingly also stated that in a recent study, as recent as a few months ago in 2018, Iceland came off as the worst supermarket for selling palm oil products with Ocado and Spa following closely behind it. So it means that it took very quick action. Yeah, it's obviously a reaction mm. to that study. I also wonder as well if um, it has anything to do with the frozen products they sell. That might be a really stupid thing to say, but it's the only supermarket that I can think of that predominantly predominantly frozen food or at least it used to didn't Mm. it the connotations of Iceland were always that it was icy whilst I'm sad the advert got banned I do understand the whole political aspect of the ad and its importance because whilst it's not something that particularly makes sense to me it seems sort of apolitical really but climate change is political not everyone even agrees in the existence of global warming for god's sake but if they open the gates for Greenpeace in Iceland how do they follow by logical extension a and I know this is quite extreme but a ban on an anti-abortion charity teaming up with another retailer you know when you open the gates where does the where does the buck stop yeah and as detailed in in the wired piece you know the exact facts of palm oil production is something i need to educate myself on further to be totally honest i think it is a multifaceted and and quite complex issue but i agree with you that while this film may not be the entire full story of deforestation and all its various factors it is highlighting one major problem which is a fact rather than a political stance I also, at risk of sounding like a very prissy, pearl-clutching mum here, cannot believe that this is being regulated so rigorously when I think of all the other messaging and images that I've seen in advertising on TV, online or on Instagram in recent years that basically promote the idea that none of us are good enough or have enough or that we need new things that are going to wipe us out of money. For me, that is more of a kind of political stance than highlighting a proven environmental issue. Pearls are very unfashioned, Dolly, so at least you have uh, a lot to clutch. We will include a link to the petition in the show notes if, like us, you would like to see the orangutan in its full story shown in all its glory on your tellies this Christmas. very much for listening to the Hilo. you can rate review and subscribe on itunes it helps other people find us and helps boost us in the charts you can email us the show at gmail.com or tweet us at the Hilo show here's some good morning jazz to fade us out bye-bye bye deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.